Awesome. That was so good. I love the line and rem- and remember what we never knew. Oh, I love that. That's <laughs> so good. <laughs> Welcome to Coffee Contrails. Today I'm here with Steve Young, a poet extraordinaire, and super happy to be um, I'm talking to him today about two pieces. Um, um, today I'm here with a uh, poet, Steve Young. Um, hello, how are you, hello. Steve? Doing <laughs> um, good. Thank you for reading with us today. Um, we've got two poems of yours that are going to be featured in the month of October. Um, one is Madame Apocrypha, and the other one is The Foot of the Bed. So, um, can starting with the first, Madame Apocrypha. How did you choose this subject? Uh, what inspired you to write this? Well, I've been working on a series of poems for a few years now, and it's a subject I've always been interested in. Since being a little kid, I used to check out the ghost books from the library. And this was a story I had heard before many times. And I think what drew me to it was every time I heard it, it was different. And the sources were different. And I had real trouble pinning down the history of this woman and of um, the events of what were supposed to have happened. The more I, I dove into it, the weirder it got. So, uh, Madame uh, LaLaurie, right? Yes. She She's a real person yes. from from New Orleans, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, what time frame? Eighteen sixty. Yeah, this is the the ninth, early nineteenth century. So the the first half of the night, and she she was born in the eighteenth century, but these events were sort of uh, mi- slightly before mid uh, mid nineteenth century. So. Uh, yeah, she she did not survive the end of the 1850s. So so she um so my from from reading your poem um so I'm cheating here uh, I know what the poem is so um so there was a fire and her mansion uh, burned to the ground so she's yeah. a prominent person in this uh, uh, town and. Um, and and wealthy, so I'm sure she has some say about how some things are run. Um, and this this event happens. So um, how is it? So you say there's multiple versions. Um, yes. What what is your take on why would there be multiple versions of this woman's home burning? Well, I think it starts with Harriet Martineau, and it's it's why she's in the poem, and I think it's why she's important to this story. She was. Um, a pretty prominent sociologist, which was kind of amazing for the 19th century. And she, a- after the events that were supposed to have happened, she traveled to New Orleans. She was born in England, so she was English. And she decided to start researching. And in that way, for this story in particular, she was kind of one of the first folklorists <laughs> uh, to, to take a story and research it deeply. Sort of a Jan Harold Brunvand is another uh, person in the 20th century who's done a lot of work on urban legends, urban myths. But she had contemporaries of Lalori there to ask, and she heard lots of stories, but was unable to corroborate a lot of them. Um, those stories were recorded, written down, 
read by other people, and then expanded upon in as late as 1945. So all the way to the 1940s, people were saying, oh, this happened too. And this, this, you know, she, she had slaves in the house and she was known as a sadist who kind of put up this good front. And the more you go into the record, really the less you know about her, you know, something terrible happened, but even the, the idea of the fire, people aren't really sure how the house burned down oh, uh, and, okay. and this is the story that came to us and this is the compelling story that people have chosen to believe that could well be true but we just don't know i see so she's um so yeah maybe a not so nice person and yeah. uh, <laughs> some horrible uh history in this in this home yeah and um and then after another home is built on That's the same right. site, right? So yes. what a, is this her the same family or is this a different family or um it's it's I, I believe it's part of the same family. I'm not even sure if the if the house was built on the same location, actually. Um, but it was the LaLaurie Mansion, and this is the one that sank into the public consciousness, not the original one that burned down, but the, the new one. This is the mansion that Nicholas Nicholas Cage famously wanted to buy or did buy it at one point, and it's it's what captured the imagination. So the story was this new mansion is where it all happened. It's where the, it's it's the haunted one, and even people who know there were two mansions, and people who are um, I would say ghost hunters believe that the ghosts have migrated from one mansion to another, possibly even from one place to another in New Orleans, which is. Um, kind of unusual um, because because the ghost was not tied to a specific person as it often is in these stories. It's not like the ghost followed someone's soul from one when they moved from one city to another, but it was almost like a ship of Theseus where if you have just the, the concept of the Lori lower, lower Mansion attached to a structure, the ghosts are going to go there because what happened was ostensibly, as we were told, very, very terrifying and awful and almost beyond description. So is this a, a place that you have visited? Um, is this a no, place that, I, is it an open museum now? Uh, I believe you can visit, the, or you used to be able to visit there, but it's more like people take pilgrimages there. It's not like a museum, it's not like a, a museum. Um, I've never been, been to New Orleans. And this is one of the reasons I would kind of like to go is, is to see places like this, because New Orleans is one of the most, I would say, haunted places in the United States. Um, and I, and I sort of, I, I, I say that, you know, as a skeptic, but I, I think the, the most interesting thing about this, this ghost story, and that's what it is, is that the ghosts are really the least interesting thing about it. Um, the ghosts do what they do. They have their chains and their thuds and their, and their suffering. But then you have this story layered on top of it, which cannot be pinned down. And a woman who seems beyond belief. And it was kind of an, uh, irresistible combination for me. So I guess that sort of rolls us into the foot of the bed, which is the second poem you shared. And you, in this one, you use a lot of imagery of shackles and chaining down at the foot, right? Yeah. Um, can you talk about this poem? Well, 
I've I've done a lot of reading about ghost stories in my life. It's one of one of my my sort of my big passions. And what I love about them is is the consistencies. Like it, it it's the perfect mirror to how we feel about life and death and places we are, memories we've had, people we've lost, people we never knew. It's our link to history. And so the foot of the bed is the idea that people tend to see phantoms at the foot of the bed. It's just, it, it's something you, it, it comes up again and again and again. It's, it's a trope. And when it, when it happens, you are kind of stuck there paralyzed. And I, although I'm interested in the idea of like night terrors and being frozen in place, like that's the less interesting side of this. What I like is the idea that the foot is almost like this sacred place in our little brains <laughs> where we place we, we we project our fears and our love and our sense of a history of a place. So if we sleep in an old mansion that we've never been in before and we hear it's haunted, the the place most likely to have a phantom is is the bedroom and the phantom standing at the foot of the bed. And there are variations of that. And I I, I like the idea of that as like a movie <laughs> because the foot of the bed is very like cinematic. It's very like visual. And um, we've all had those experiences where we wake up and we hear someone maybe slightly whispering in our ear, or there's a shadow there and we can't quite make it out. We don't know if we're awake or not. And I like you're the idea. Just on the edge where your imagination is sort of toying with you, right? That's exactly it. Yeah. It's, it's this liminal space that, um, you know, if someone's on a cot or a bunk or a mattress on the floor, it's still the foot we see these things. In the stories, it happens again and again. And so I just got really interested in that. And um, it's the, in the sort of the collection of them, I'm, I've been working on it's kind of like the first poem because it kind of like sets the stage because it kind of it it reads a little like a song lyric <laughs> almost like a a chant to get to sort of uh draw safety around <laughs> oneself the idea like someone comes into the house and wants to steal something instantly we're like okay yeah I'm wide awake now <laughs> but this phantom is like you know <laughs> like right, right there and we're like, yeah sure you're paralyzed you know? It's yeah, like it having all, a heavy weight on your chest or something that you're afraid to move. Maybe yeah, if I just, yeah. um, if I'm really quiet, they'll just pass on by. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. There, there was another, uh, another story called the growling torso, which kind of reminds me of that, where there is this weight and that sense of weight where the phantom moves from the foot on top of the sleeper or just awakened. And um, I think the idea that these phantoms that come to people, come to all of us in one form or other however whether we're believers or skeptics or ghost hunters it's it's this projection of just a deep place in our imagination where people who would think that i have no creative bone in my body would project a phantom to the foot of their bed which has a great tragedy or suffering or anger and a history behind them um that that they may not be able to summon if they thought it was coming out of their own mind. And I think, I think the idea of a phantom projected from ourselves is so much more intriguing and almost unbelievable than a real ghost would be. I know that's a strong statement, but it feels that way to me. 
And so that these are collected from that idea. They're very cool. I would have to say, I love the line and rem- and remember what we never knew. Oh, I love that. That's, <laughs> that's so good. Because there is almost like there's like a melding of of the minds where there's this deep need for the ghost to communicate to us. It's it, it's such a mind meld that it is like sort of uh, inheriting a memory that either we created or came from the ghost. And who can say? Because I also, you know, I don't want to I don't want to come down too hard on either side of that. <laughs> you know, as as someone writing about this stuff, because I that's not interesting to me either. The idea that we know exactly why this is happening. Well. The mystery is what makes it beautiful. So you're going to, um, you mentioned collections. So it sounds like you have more uh, stories along this line. Yeah. Many more. Yeah. So <laughs> well, there, what, are you, many. what are you working on? Um, what's, uh, it, what's your, what's your idea there? And how can people, you know, follow and find, find this if they want to pick it up when it's, when it's done? Yeah. Um, well, the, the series is called Apparitions. And I've been working on it for way too long, <laughs> for about seven years now. And uh, right now, it's a collection of 16 works. And they're all kind of uh, either really, really short or kind of sprawling and, and lyrical, kind of like 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 Madame Apocrypha is. Um, they're not published at the moment. You know, this is kind of this is this is their first um, exposure to oxygen, apart from some writing groups I've been in. I did a I did a reading last summer in a writing group uh, for the foot of the bed. Oh, very cool. And so that was like its first breath. What did you think of being in a writing group, a retreat, a writing retreat? And would you recommend uh, participating in one? I, I I would. It does depend on. Um, I think it's important to have some sense of. Uh, like kinship with 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 anyone you go to a writing retreat with, whether it's just a day or a weekend, is what I did, and um, and that everyone kind of talks through what you want to do with the time before you start the time. And in that case, I would highly recommend it to anyone. Yeah, agreeing how to spend the time. If you don't agree ahead of time, then you could spend all your time um, disagreeing about what you should be doing. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and, and this group was very. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Th- this group was very freeform because we had a lot of self-writing time and then some optional time to share work, which was not a requirement, and then just sometimes reading without feedback. So uh, just a broad range of of um, writing related stuff and. And the people there were very creative and cool and and everyone had different visions and different styles. And that inspires you when you want to write is to just be around people who are writing. Even if you're in a room with someone, two people, three people who are writing and saying nothing and just sitting at a table or sitting in separate rooms, that's the best thing you can, that's, that's, that's the number one cure for writer's block. <laughs> if, if that's something that you believe in and you, than you suffer from. I, I don't have that problem. I have the opposite problem, but um, it was really inspiring. That's cool. Very cool. So your plans for apparitions, um, your collection of poems, when do you- Yeah. I pumped the brakes on apparitions last uh, late last summer. So I've, I've been gathering them together this year and I'm hoping to get them self-published. Um, and I know a few people who have done that with um, short stories and poems and 
um, I, I just, I need them to have air. I need them to, to not be in my brain anymore. And um, if, if anything, there's, there are too many ghost stories in the world. And so, you know, I have many, many, many books filled with anecdotes and half told stories, half remembered myths. And there, there's too much. So I had to, I had to narrow it down. And so I'm hoping within the next six months, I'll be able to do that because I have a lot to learn about uh, about formatting and the self-publishing side of things. Reading them aloud has been very fun. It's a fun way to get it into the world. I could see you doing like open mic nights and stuff like that. Just, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Start in the local scene, you know, and start finding those like-minded poets around you. Because if you all kind of share a vision, then it it becomes just many times more exciting. <laughs> and so, I mean, I, I do, I like a good, you know, slam poem as much as the next person, but, but I have this sort of conservative lyrical style that's that sometimes people don't quite know what to make of if they're if they're expecting like something a little snappier or you know and and so it's like it's like living it's, it's like with a writing group you want to you want to be with writers who kind of are uh going for the same thing you are in the sense like oh, I, I'm trying to figure this thing out I'm trying to get this cha last chapter in I want to form this poem more and you know if that happens then you can be more inspired otherwise it can be just like yeah I feel kind of like I'm I'm not sure why I'm here <laughs> you know so I want to try to avoid that if I can but I, I want the, I want the people to be you know to come and know what they're getting into <laughs> and, and right. not to fall asleep in their chair do you have a website or I, I uh, do I do I do have one yeah social um, media um I'm not super active on social media but I do have a blog which I've had for many years a poetry blog if you look for uh, Blue Syncopate, which is sort of the handle on Blogger, you'll find me. Blue Syncopate, and that's spelled B-L-U-E-S-Y-N-C-O-P-A-T-E. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, again, I really do. They're wonderful. And I do wish you all the luck in getting apparitions finished. Thank you very much. Bye, Steve. Bye. Have a great night. You too.